Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols. And on today's episode, we have Raymond Pryor yet again. I hope you're not tired of him. I'm definitely not tired of him. I can't get enough of what this guy, the the knowledge this guy brings every time to the podcast. And if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know who he is already. But in case you haven't, he is a performance consultant to high performers in many different industries, and he especially works with players at the top of the golfing world. Uh, find him wherever you can find him. Uh, I, I've featured him three previous episodes. One goes back to early 2022, and then more recently I've done a couple episodes with him on dispelling common golf psychology myths. I highly recommend all three of those episodes. They've they've all three been some of my favorite conversations I've had yet. Not to disparage any other people on the podcast, of course, but they just I've just learned so much from him, and he's inspired me so much to um, to improve the way that I learn and uh, even work with the players that I work with. So, uh, and as you probably heard me talk about before. He is dropping his new book, Golf Beneath the Surface, The New Science of Golf Psychology. It'll be available May 9th, so the link to go grab it is in the show notes of this episode. So let's let Dr. Pryor do all the talking. Let's get into this conversation. I hope you enjoy. Yeah, appreciate you doing this again. Um, you've you've been on here a few times already, so no no need for introduction. But maybe at the top, um, I want to I want to make mention of golf beneath the surface, and maybe maybe we can start with um, why you wrote this book and a little bit of the background on um, kind of the impetus for it and where it fits in the in the golf uh, psychology landscape or the golf advice landscape. Maybe give us a little rundown of the context of what's this book for and why? The book is for anybody who wants to understand their psychology better and, and use that information to play better golf. I mean, the whole point of training your psychology and understanding it on a deeper level is so that when you go to the course, you can play better, enjoy the experience more, and hopefully get more of the outcomes that you want. Um, writing this book has always been on my radar for a while. The inflection point for it was you know at the beginning of global pandemic like i wasn't traveling to tournaments anymore so i was at home quite a bit and i was like well if i'm gonna write this book now's the time to do it um what i really hope the book will be is a bit of a challenge to the status quo of the psychology available to golfers as as, as resources go there's some really good information out there um but much of it is grossly outdated and a lot of it is pretty inaccurate and again, I'm not trying to bash anybody else in the field who's who are doing good work. They're doing stuff that's really helpful to people. But I've read every single golf psychology book I can find back when I was a student trying to learn. And then again, as I was writing this book, and, and quite frankly, I think we can do better for people in general. The other thing that's will be a different about this book is that um, I am not the expert as the author. The expert is the research that we know about human psychology and the psychology of performance as it pertains to golf. And so when the reader's finished with this book, the idea is that they will be the expert on their own psychology, not I told you, here's what you should think, here's what you shouldn't think, et cetera. So it's a little bit more in depth. Um, 
there is some research in it because again, how do we know if something works if we haven't rigorously tested it in ways to actually find out what it does? Um, and then also it's written in a way where it's not, hey, here's what some other golfer did. You should go do this. It's here's what a lot of golfers experience. Um, here's what's happening underneath the mechanisms underneath. Here's how you can train something different if that's what's something you would like to do. So again, I hope it's a bit of a status quo challenger. Um, it addresses some myths in the book, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, and it provides more in-depth mechanistic information about human psychology that then allows people to actually simplify and use in real time. So does it, uh, for, for the listeners who haven't read it yet, who hopefully will pre-order it or get it when it comes out, does it give actual exercises, things to do, uh, the practical because a lot of books are theoretical just do this just do that does it does it kind of give a step-by-step or a walkthrough of what can i actually do yeah every single section includes direct trainable application so for example the second section is begins with the mechanistic underpinnings of how we interact with our own thoughts and feelings and then it finishes with here are the mindfulness practices to train a more fluid and flexible relationship with your own thoughts and feelings. So you're not trying to avoid them or fight them all the time, which we know doesn't work very well for the vast majority of people. The third section is just about habits. I mean, I give you very, very clearly three stages of here's how you change a habit very directly. And in the last section, we talk about basically core beliefs that are underpinning whether your confidence is stable or unstable. And here's how you address the thoughts that are undermining stable confidence. Here's how you start to develop ones that are. And then each section also has um, direct information for how to decipher between what's controllable and what's not, how to perhaps interact with goals more efficiently, et cetera. So there is a ton of practical application. The difference is I also give you the, the, the psychological, neurological, and behavioral underpinnings of all. Yeah. So why is it so important to, and and this alludes to the title of the book, why is it so important to learn the underpinnings rather than just tell me what to do, right? I just, I just want to know what to do. Why is it so important to learn? Because a significant, uh, chunk of every, you know, maybe 80% of every, uh, section is, kind of educational and obviously it would be a really short book without that but why is it so important to learn underpinnings rather than jump straight to what should i do for the simple reason that understanding something in depth and in more depth allows you to simplify it in real time if you don't really understand your psychology and your relationship with your own thoughts it's much more difficult to simplify that and do something efficient when you're actually performing in the same way that if you don't really understand how your engine in your car works, it gets more complicated to try to figure out how to get more out of it or perhaps repair it when it's damaged, right? When we don't understand things very well, they get more complicated, not more simple, right? If the people I work with knew as much as I knew about human psychology, Things would be very simple for them when they're on the golf course in the same way that if I knew everything they knew about the golf swing and how to strategically attack golf courses, it would be a lot more simple for me to do that in real time, which is often why we start overthinking on the golf course. We often start overthinking because we're trying to simplify something 
in a way that isn't very efficient because we don't really understand what's happening in the first place. So the book, my hope is that when people finish reading it, they'll have a much better understanding of their own psychology. And then therefore, when things are happening in real time to them, they can identify it more quickly and more accurately and know, oh, because of this, because of this, then I can troubleshoot to this in a way that if you don't really understand it, then you're falling into all these strategies that if I told you just do this, might not be the most efficient thing because we don't have the context and the mechanistic understanding behind it. Yeah. Okay. That's that. I think that's a great um, sell for be patient, get, go spend time learning about something, you know, read, read the actual directions before jumping in and grabbing the tools and just tinkering, learn what to do first and then apply the tools. When we pay attention to people who are experts on anything, when you when they ask questions, tell me about this, tell me about this, tell me about like they're very directed questions based on the knowledge they have. And then it comes like out to a try this that is far more efficient, not because they're just saying, OK, go do this, but because they have such an in-depth understanding that it makes it very obvious what's next and what's most important or perhaps the most efficient thing to do. I'll give an example that I give a lot. I once saw Tiger Woods, I don't know Tiger directly, but I once saw him give a chipping lesson or, you know, some chipping advice to another player on tour. Like he asked some very direct questions, very clearly guided questions based on how much he knows. And the application that he was asking the player to do was crazy simple, right? The player was having an intensely complicated uh, process of trying to figure out how to chip better. Tiger just had an expertise that allowed him to simplify it for that player in real time. Now, and to Tiger's credit, instead of him going, just do this, he was like, here's what's happening. Here's why it's happening. Here's what you can expect if such and such and such and such. And it, it, he was able to simplify and coach really well in a um, situation where somebody else was finding it intensely difficult to do so because he's an expert in it. The whole point of this book, I want people to be an expert in their own psychology so that they can do it on their own in real time in a way that just telling someone, just go think this or just uh, focus on this, it doesn't really have that same level of staying power. Awesome. Okay, so let's let's dive into the book. And I've got it broken up into kind of the four categories that the um, or four sections that the book is. We got brain, awareness, habits, and framework. Uh, is that is that the correct um, is it framework or beliefs? Basically the same thing. Framework is a reference to our psychological framework, which includes our, what's, I would say the most influential component of our psychological framework is our core belief system. Right. They're kind of, so they are the prisms through which we experience anything in our life. And so if we pay attention to those and uh, understand them, we can change our direct experience with stuff. But yes, that is the order. And those sections all build upon each other. Um, in sequential order so that you can see how they are related and why you would put them in that order. Got it. Okay. So as I was reading it, just, just a quick aside on, as I was reading it, it seemed, I, I was interested in how it kind of went from detail to bigger picture. And I, in my mind, I, I would have always said, don't we need to lay the groundwork of the bigger picture? But you, you intentionally decided let's start with detail and get to bigger picture. How come you, cho- how come you made that decision? 
Yeah. So let's just say the end of the book, the bigger picture is like your overall psychological framework, your core belief system about yourself and golf. That doesn't make very much sense if you don't know how your brain is designed to operate and why we have those certain beliefs and when those certain beliefs shape our experiences, why we have certain behaviors. For example, you don't know that your brain is designed to push you toward worst case scenario. When you project a worst case scenario that is pessimistic enough, it's going to trigger avoidance-based habits. And so if then we go to our awareness section, if you can't interact with those thoughts as just thoughts or feelings, and you treat them as facts just because you have that thought or that belief running the show, now you can see why we play scared, we would play hesitant, or when we come to certain situations and shots, that anxiety starts to run the show. But if you don't understand that your brain is designed to do that in the first place, it becomes you try to force those things away rather than interacting with them um, more fluidly and flexibly. Got it. So that that definitely touches on the first section, which is brain and and how the details of what the brain is even designed to do ref, uh, affect everything else. So everything. everything. So the um, the the one question I, I came up with one question kind of from the brain section and most of my questions come in the awareness section. But the one question that came to mind from the brain one was what's the difference between the mind and the brain? It's something you talked about a little bit there. Um, and, and then obviously what's the application there to golf and why does it matter that there's that we even understand that there's a difference? So the difference between our mind and brain, we'll start with our brain. Our brain is an organ. Um, and like every other organ in our body, it is designed to keep us alive first and foremost. So that's how it's designed. Um, we might think of it as an analogy, you might think about it if, if our brain and mind are computer oriented, our brain is hardware. There are some biological non-negotiables, meaning it is designed to operate in this way and it is going to operate in that way. However, our mind is like the software. So our brain is an organ that is designed to think and process information. It's built of gray matter and white matter and neurological connections. And there are things about it, like I said, biological, non-negotiable, can't change. However, what we can with our mind, which is our perceptions, our beliefs, our assumptions, uh, creativity, imaginative thinking, conscious thought, which is our mind, it, as the software, we can use that hardware differently. In a very fundamental level, that hardware can either push us towards surviving situations, which in some situations, very helpful, obviously. However, when it comes to things like golf or most areas in our modern life, survival is not the priority because that's already assured for us. And when I say survival, I mean physical life and limb. And so we can train our software, that is our own psychology, our mind, in order to move us more toward thriving toward the things we want. We have the benefit of living in this modern world where we don't have to figure out for most people how to just survive in the world, how to eat, how to reproduce, how to do all that stuff, which is how our brain was designed and it hasn't evolved much since. So if we understand how it's designed as a hardware system, we can then develop the software system, meaning training our psychology in a way that when this, soft, this hardware takes shape, um, we can shift it more toward thriving moving toward the things we want. So if we understand the difference between the two, the whole point is, can I train my mind in a way that shapes my thoughts, my actions, and my overall behaviors more toward the things I want, 
than trying to avoid the things that I don't. And the bottom line is that is a survival-based orientation that would be very helpful if you were in physical danger, not very helpful for us for making clear, decisive, uh, clear, decisive um, actions when it's time to thrive, which if we're playing golf, the whole point is to try to play as well as possible. Mm. So where does that survival mechanism come into play? If we're, if we're talking, it's helpful when you're about to get hit by a car, but it's not super helpful when you're out on the golf course. Where does that survival mechanism come in? And where is it triggered, maybe you could say? And then uh, why is it unhelpful? Well, it can be technically triggered by anything real or not real, right? So um, if we're breaking our brain into two basic areas, you have, you made a fist, this would, and, and just held it out in front of you, that would represent what we call our old brain. It, these are the, the structures of our brain that are the fastest, the strongest, and the oldest, and we're the first to evolve. And they move way, way fast, and they're super strong because if they didn't, we would die. So the survival portions of our brain are the fastest and strongest. Then if you put your hand over your fist, that hand would represent what we call like our neocortex. That includes our prefrontal cortex, which is the areas of our brain that we can have rational, conscious, um, creative thoughts. Where the survival comes in on the golf course is that when things become threatening to us, either perceived or real, mostly perceived by us, then it's going to trigger survival-based responses for us. And if you're in a situation where you want to pursue the thing that you want, if you are triggered much more toward a survival-based response, which would be things like anxiety, frustration, and elevated levels of anger, best case scenario is you're multitasking between pursuit and avoidance. And you're going to be either best cases, you're somewhere in between with those. Usually what happens, the two second, two, I'm sorry, two tenths of a second between the top of your backswing and impact is plenty of time for your brain to go, oh, we have a choice between this and this. I'm choosing avoidance because that's exactly what it's designed to do. And there's no amount of conscious, rational thinking. No, just pursue what you want. Because again, the parts of your brain that are survival based are so much faster and so much stronger. Right. So where this plays out on the golf course is, is the things that aren't necessarily a danger to us physically, we perceive as threats because they are potentially threats to us emotionally, socially, to our scorecard, to our pocketbooks, etc. And if we are not willing to accept that risk, then we are going to be creating a stress uh, response that ultimately tips over to anxiety. Right. So. So the way to address that two tenths of a second is not like Tiger, stop your swing in the middle and back off. It's something more holistic. What, how can you address that? Instead of think this during the swing and it will fix everything, uh, be approach oriented, be, uh, you know, be, um, proactive, not avoidant. What, what can you do to address that two tenths of a second? Yeah. So that, Again, that mechanistic uh, brain non-negotiable is important to understand to begin with because, as they alluded to, now if we jump to the last section of the book on framework, if we are thinking about things in ways that create almost no margin for error, smaller than real, real or perceived, and we are projecting a future that is threatening enough perceived by our brain, 
then you can step into a shot and all you want and be like, hit it here. But if deep down below, there's a thought, no, you better not do this because if this happens, it's going to be, and then fill in whatever pessimistic explanation you create for it. It's too late. Your survival portions of your brain will override because of the software you're running. Cause the software you're really running is don't let something happen. And if you tell your brain, don't hit it left, it doesn't see left as danger fairway. Okay, way right, it goes, well, if left is danger and embarrassing and the worst thing in the world that I cannot possibly live with, it doesn't see fairway as kind of safe. It sees far, 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 farther and farther right as safe, which is why if you tell yourself, don't hit it left, there are usually two options that happen. The first is you bust it way, 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 way right because you told your brain, don't hit it there. And it went fine, go way over there. Or if you're unlucky enough, you probably double cross it and you probably lead yourself exactly where you didn't want to go. Hmm. And we have to understand the, the mechanistic underpinnings of how our brain is designed that when I tell it, don't do this, it wants to do the exact opposite. Or it's going to be like, well, I'm now very curious about what's going on over here, because that would tell me how dangerous it might actually be. And if you're doing this in real time during your golf swing, again, we cannot consciously think fast enough to out, uh, outpower and outspeed the parts of our brain that are designed to make that decision very quickly and very efficiently for us. Mm, okay. Yeah, we're we're learning that the brain has a lot of control of what's going on. In fact, it probably has all of the control. It Well, I wouldn't say all, but your hardware is going to be faster and stronger than your software. And so if your software doesn't give your hardware reason to be like, oh, just go get that and we'll live with whatever else happens. Um, it'll take over, right? And it's designed to. Again, this is not a bad thing or a flaw in human nature or a lack of willpower. It's how our brain is designed that in a way that kept us alive for a very long, long time. In the same way that if you deliver the club in a certain way, physics dictate that a ball is going to do something. Right. Right. Physical, physics-based non-negotiables in a golf swing, just like there are some biological non-negotiables in our brain. Got it. Okay, so let's move into awareness. Uh, Awareness is a broad term and hence the why it's the title of an entire section. But before we get into it more, what do you mean by awareness? Define awareness for us. Sure. Well, just say awareness is really important. The reason it's the second section. So again, why are we moving in this order? First of all, got to understand at least the basics of how your brain is operating and why. The reason awareness is the next section is because awareness is the first line of information processing for everything. Again, a, this is a bit of a cognitive, neurological, and physiological non-negotiable. Like if we're sitting here and all of a sudden you become aware that you need to go to the bathroom, that is a physiological non-negotiable that is trying to make sure that you do what you need to do in order to survive. In the same way that our body and brain makes us feel hungry when we haven't eaten in enough time, awareness sparks us to go move towards something or move away of something. So Awareness is another way of saying information processing for our brain. But there are a variety of different types of awareness that we can bring to things. In the section of the book, I introduce and help people learn how to train what's called mindful awareness. And mindfulness is this very popular term going around lately, um, but still largely misunderstood. But mindfulness is another way of saying a very specific type of awareness. It is built on three uh, fundamental elements, the first one being groundedness, meaning 
in the present moment, paying attention to what's happening right now in a proactive way, not a reactive way. So mindfulness, mindfulness is very proactive. It means I'm going to pay attention on purpose, which allows us to be ahead of the information rather than reacting to it. The second is it's built on awareness. I'm sorry, uh, acceptance. And acceptance is another way of saying as things are, not what I wish they would be, um, not what I think they should be, but just whatever they are and without judgment, meaning not so much labeling my thoughts and feelings or any experience of my life as good or bad or right or wrong, but more seeing it for what it is. And that's another way of saying we're related to truth, not subjective interpretation. Um, and as we start to develop that type of awareness, the other part is um, intention, excuse me, and intention, again, is just paying attention on purpose and doing so systematically and through a more um, mindful lens, we might say. Mm. And so with type of awareness, what happens is we're paying attention proactively to things as they are and as they are in the present moment, which is the only moment that we're actually physically living in. And what that does is it allows us a ton of space to be able to operate, whether we are interacting with our own thoughts and feelings, a competitive situation, or um, any real challenge in our lives, there's just more space to operate there. Mindfulness is not a special uh, Zen state that is magical where everything feels great and is super comfortable all the time. It actually allows for all the uncertainty and discomfort that comes with life. And in allowing for that, on a neurological and physiological level, it allows us to sit in discomfort long enough for one, the parts of our brain that perceive threat to understand that sitting in discomfort is not a threat. So we don't move back to our safety zone, so to speak. We sit in our growth zone. And the second thing is, is it keeps the part of our brain online that allows us to make a conscious, rational, intentional choice about what it is that we want to do. And so the bottom line is with this mindful awareness, it allows us to be present more often. It allows us to be more resilient. It allows us to interact with our own thoughts and feelings in ways where they are far less disruptive just because they exist. And it allows us to pay attention to our behaviors and our beliefs in a way that we can change them if we want to. Great. So I, I want to talk about mindfulness practice as a real thing that people can do. And, and I want to get there, but to dive into some of the things you just said, um, specifically with acceptance. And as I was reading, I, um, I kind of had a, maybe a, is this, a, could this be a potential contradiction type of thought? So uh, what I wrote down was, how can you look at thoughts, feelings, behaviors, or beliefs in a non-judgmental way, uh, you know, with acceptance, but you also determine that they're unhelpful or constricting. So that sounds like a judgment that you're putting on the things you're experiencing, but you're also supposed to look at things in a non-judgmental way, or um, you might you might push back on the word "supposed to," but um, this so it's like be non non-judgmental, but also notice the unhelpful things you do. So how do those how can those two live in parallel? Yeah, super good question. Um, the answer is that describing things objectively is by definition non-judgment. So judgment is good or bad, right or wrong, should or shouldn't be doing. So it's a subjective assessment. That's judgment. Judgment is subjective. 
um, evaluating our behaviors for what they are doing for us and whether that's something that is helpful or, or non-productive for us is an objective evaluation. For example, you might say, um, assuming the worst case scenario is going to happen. Now, we could very easily go, that's a negative thought or a bad thought, or that's a thought you shouldn't be having. That would be a subjective judgment. Saying, oh, me assuming the worst case scenario, objectively, what that does for me is it makes me play scared or it makes me less motivated to try because, well, the worst thing's going to happen no matter what I do. Those are two very different things because they are rooted in one subjective, one is objective, and the other is rooted in um, projection and the other is rooted in truth. Okay, so acceptance doesn't mean that we don't evaluate things. It's really a matter of how are we evaluating them? Are we evaluating for how factual and perhaps how beneficial they are? Or are we evaluating for them for their righteousness or wrongness, goodness or badness? Right? Mm. There's a big difference between what happens for us emotionally when we judge ourselves for the thoughts we're having or even the experiences of our lives as good or bad, right or wrong, because it makes them a more emotionally heavy experience for us. Right. So if I told you that is a bad golf shot, it's going to be a more emotional response than that is a push. Right. Now, we are humans. We are um, innately subjective to some degree. But the more we can reel back that subjectivity, the better we are at dealing with our current reality. Because if I told you, Josh, you need to make a correction so that you don't hit another bad golf shot. There's not a lot of information in that. If I told you you hit a pretty substantial push now you can make an adjustment for that again assuming you have a mechanistic understanding of your golf swing um but those two different things uh, those two different experiences one is very constricting for us the subjective judgment and the other is far more spacious and we don't need all the space in the world meaning we don't need to feel totally comfortable to have liked what happened or to feel totally certain about something we just need enough space to be able to operate within and objectivity creates far more space for us to move within. On a neurological level, subjective thinking not only makes us typically feel worse as humans, also creates significantly higher frequency and higher intensity brain activity. And that's the type of stuff that like quite literally and directly a physiological non-negotiable disrupts our physical skills. On a neurochemical level, it becomes anxiety and anxiety on a neurochemical level is just adrenaline, no dopamine. And that makes things feel worse, hence feel worse. It also makes things feel really long for us. So if we build this mindful awareness of our own thoughts and experiences where they are more objective, we are accepting them as they are rather than what we wish they would be or what they should be. Experiences actually become more enjoyable, even when they're really challenging and filled with adversity. Hence the intrinsic motivation that comes with it. We are better able to make decisions about what we want to do because the parts of our brain that make rational decisions are not being overpowered by the parts of our brain that make emotional and impulsive decisions. And also we're just present more often and we are far more resilient and far more high functioning people when we're present more often. So then it, it sounds like, and it, it's my job as a, as a, host of a podcast to kind of pull out and say um, what, you know, that was interesting and let's um, kind of headline uh, just make things really interesting and, and, and only pull out the best things that you said. But 
when you, as you're saying that, it sounds like you need to move away from emotion and towards objectivity. And does that, I know I see, I see you shaking your head. No, no, no. But does that, does that mean the closer we get to, you know, just logical robots, the more present we'll be and the more good we'll be at golf? Is that, is that what you're pushing people towards? No. Um, when we are more objective, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be emotionless, right? If you objectively go, I just hit a big push that make this next shot far more difficult. There's probably some level of frustration with that. Um, one of the things about mind being more mindful is that we're not trying to suppress our thoughts and emotions and suppressing thoughts and emotions only amplifies them. I don't think humans would play and perform better without emotion. In fact, we know emotion moves people in ways that being super logical and unemotional doesn't. However, when our emotions spill over and they become too amplified and too layered, it also disrupts things for us. And the bottom line is that we, if we look at what happens psychologically and cognitively for us, the farther into the past we are and the farther into the future and the more strung up with them we get, the more emotional we become. Emotions exist in the present moment and that's okay. I wouldn't ever want anyone to turn off their emotions because it's part of being human. And they're also, it's very healthy. And um, I would say necessary for us as human beings to experience the full range of human emotion, trying to suppress it and trying to keep it in a little box is probably not helpful. But the more we try to push it into this little box by trying to not think and not feel, then we start to amplify them. And then they get to the point where See, the danger that you're um, alluding to is when we become too emotional, the parts of our brain that make rational decisions start to turn off. So being overly emotional in situations, not helpful. Trying to turn emotions off, also not helpful. So there's not a space where I'm ever trying to get people to not think and feel. Thinking for us is really good for us as human beings. And when we allow for that, Emotions don't get bottled up. So when we try to suppress emotions and thought, think about it like putting it in a soda can and shaking it up, but keeping the lid on. It's only a matter of time before you shake it up enough and it's going to explode. We want to allow for it. It's kind of like releasing the carbonation or the, the pressure every now and then, because then you can shake it from time to time and it doesn't become something that boils over and explodes on us. And usually um, when we bottle emotions or we try to suppress them or pretend they don't exist, um, and try to make ourselves into super logical robots, it just builds up and builds up and builds up and typically comes out at the times that are least helpful for us. Yeah. When the when the biggest emotional event happens, you explode and then it and spills over. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And anybody who's had a really frustrating day of work and tried to bottle that up and then come home to their spouse or significant other will know exactly what that is same thing plays out on the golf course if you've been frustrated for six holes and then you get to a hole and you finally hit that shot that is the straw that breaks the camel's back suppose like you're going to have a much more um, amplified response that is probably going to be far more disruptive to your scorecard than if you had allowed for some frustration or some anxiety or whatever beforehand sure okay so you you talked about um observing things in an objective way not uh, in an emotional way. So is there, is there a way to objectively, um, and you said ob objectively evaluate, is there a way to measure this in some way where you are, um, the thing that comes to mind is a mental scorecard, but something along the lines of, I, I 
I did this kind of behavior and this many times, and I was able to respond well in this many times. And I don't know if I'm coming across making sense, but is there a way to measure this in an objective way to say, I used to be this way and now I'm this way and I've clearly gotten better. Is that important? Is that something you can do? Sure. Behavior change is important for us as human beings. So we are perfectly capable of behavior change. It might be more difficult for us when we are adults because our, again, here's another biological, physiological, non-negotiable. After about the age of 25, making changes is harder for us because our brain is designed to try to maintain current neurological pathways, not build new ones which doesn't mean we can't. It just means that we have to do it more efficiently based on how our brain actually operates and how it actually learns. So one of the ways we can objectively, more objectively at least, pay attention to our behaviors and start to change them is by asking questions that register to our brain in a way that, like in the currencies that it uses to evaluate behaviors. Let's say your behavior is to every time you hit a shot you don't like, you just get crazy angry and start throwing clubs and doing whatever. Right? First thing I would ask you is, how does it feel to be that angry and to respond that way? And the reason we ask, how does it feel, is because one of the things that reinforces our behaviors as humans is our feelings. And if something feels really crappy to us or feels agitating, feels constricting, feels hot, etc., and we pay attention to that, it starts to become less appealing for our brain simply because our brain is designed to gravitate toward things that feel better and move away from things that feel worse. How it's designed. So if we know that and we pay attention to how crappy it feels to break a club in the middle of the round, perhaps how um, frustrated, what it feels like to be that frustrated and how you feel like you just want to walk off the golf course, like you pay attention to that. The second question I would ask you is what are you actually getting. So here's where the difference between subjectivity and objectivity is important. When I say actually getting, I'm not saying what does it feel like you're getting, which is I'm doing something to hit better shots. I'm asking what do you actually get from getting that frustrated after a shot? And then I might break it down into other questions. For example, does it make your confidence more stable or less stable? Does it allow you to be more present or are you multitasking with the past and the future? Are you actually hitting better shots or is your next shot through more frustration and anger and then therefore more difficult to play? Does it make you more resilient or less resilient feeling like, well, this is just a waste of time. I should just give up. Or does it give you reason to go, you know what, let me see if I can do a little bit better on the next one. Does it make golf more enjoyable or less enjoyable? Down to the nitty gritty. Does it allow you to execute your skills in the way that you've been practicing and trying to take to the course or does it make it more difficult to do so? And down to the bottom line, does it help you score better or does it help you score worse? Right. So if we pay attention to, you know, in psychology, we would use the term the natural consequences of our thoughts, our uh, behaviors, our responses. Our brain is designed to pay attention to natural consequences like that. And if we bring a mindful awareness to it, meaning a proactive, accepting and grounded awareness, meaning I'm paying attention to it on purpose as it's happening and as it is then our brain will start to go, I don't know if this is the best thing for me. And it takes a little bit of time, particularly, again, if you're over the age of 25. But it doesn't take too long to figure out that getting that upset isn't really the best option for us if you're actually paying attention to what you get for it. In the exact same way, it doesn't take you too long to figure out that you don't want to drink sour milk. 
That's how our brain is designed to move toward things that feel good and things that don't move away from. So that is a more objective way of paying attention to it. And what will happen is objectively your direct experience something with something will change, meaning you'll, you will actually respond to the same thing in a different way, both internally and externally. And we can start to do that. Like, again, the framework for how we know how to do that is pretty straightforward. It just takes a little bit of time. And again, understanding what are the mechanisms underneath that would keep me from doing that in the first place. Right. So no, not necessarily need to physically write it down. I mean, you could, you could have a, a, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say writing things down for us is actually really helpful. So we would, in psychology, we call this externalizing. And externalizing, when we see our own thoughts and our own actions in our own handwriting, in our own native language, it does register differently to our brain. And different than um, just experiencing it and telling myself that I don't do that. That's dumb. Stop doing that. Like when we actually write it out, especially in our own handwriting, it does make a difference. So I would recommend to anybody who's trying to perhaps interact differently with their thoughts or perhaps see a thought and think about a thought differently or a behavior reaction to write it out. Now, again, it's not, I did this, don't do this. It's, this is what I did. This is what it felt like. This is what I got from it. And I, again, in section three of the book on habits, I detailed this whole process. And again, the mechanism mechanisms underneath, but writing things out by hand for us is very helpful for our brain. It does see it and experience it differently than just it happened internally. Right. Yeah. And as you were going through that progression of what, what do you actually get from it? It probably only takes one or two of those. And you're like, I don't need to do this anymore. It doesn't take too much. And the reason writing it out also registers for us differently is the world for our brain is sensory rich, but consequence poor. Sensory rich, meaning whatever happens, we experience directly in our emotions, in our thoughts, in our sensations. And we get those right on right in at the interface of our nervous system consequences happen outside of that layer for us typically and so if we don't look past that first sensory layer we don't get to the consequences which is part of the reason why we continue to do things that aren't necessarily helpful for us even though conceptually we know it because our sensory experience in that moment draws us right into it if you get angry and it feels like you're doing something to prove how good a golfer you are and how unacceptable it is for good golfers to hit four shots, you're going to feel that directly. If you step outside of that layer by paying attention to, actually, I'm not getting anything good from this and this makes golf less enjoyable. And by the way, it doesn't actually make me a better golfer. All it does is try to massage my ego. It becomes a less enchanting uh, response for you. And then it gives you the opportunity to move towards something that might be more helpful than sticking with the same thing just because that's what you've been doing. Mm. So essentially you're trying to move the consequences Close towards up. the sensory experience. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Non-judgmental way. Again, instead of going, just don't do that. You shouldn't be doing that. That's the worst response possible. Going, here's my response. Here's what I actually get from it, both in my sensory experience and how it actually impacts my performance and my golf game. Then it becomes a far less enchanting uh, option for us. And then quite literally on a neurological in our brain, our brain is starting to move that behavior down the hierarchy of options for us, which is what must happen again, of physiological non-negotiable for us in order for us to replace a behavior. We actually have to move one down the list of options to be able to create the space for the next. 
Got it. That's awesome. Okay. And really, actually, very practical for someone. This is the process I'm going to send my beliefs and or behaviors and responses through. I think that's awesome. So what comes to mind as you're talking about this is momentum. And it's something that we hear all the time on golf broadcast and golfers talk about it. Yeah, I just I made that par that par save on four kept my round going or whatever it is. It what are your thoughts on momentum? Is it does it exist? Uh, Obviously, is it it's a if you maybe perceive that exists, maybe it does. Um, But what is what are your thoughts on momentum? Yeah, I think there's too much anecdotal evidence to try to make a conclusion momentum doesn't exist we've all felt it before what i it has been my experience that what momentum is is a series or even just one timely unlikely event going in our direction right so if you think about oh i made a par putt well it's usually a par putt that isn't a tapping right or I uh, had momentum going like I birdie four holes in a row. Even for the best golfers in the in the world, birdieing four holes in a row is a low percentage event, right? So I think momentum most certainly exists. Um, there are emotional components to it. There are physiological and psychological components to it. But I think it is usually what we typically feel when things go our way repeatedly in the face of poor odds. Even if you're uh, you know, I remember playing high school soccer and just the momentum, like we're just killing a team. It's like 10 to zero. Like the odds of you scoring 10 goals unanswered in a soccer game, even against a poor team are still pretty rare. Right. So I think momentum is what we typically feel and experience when a variety of low probability events work out in our favor. It is undoubtedly helpful. Um, it is a low percentage strategy to try to perform with. If you're trying to go, well, I'll just make a bunch of low probability things happen for me. That will keep me confident or that will keep me going. So I wouldn't say it's a very reliable performance strategy, but it's definitely a thing. There's no doubt about that. Right. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you ended there where you said basically people, it's very fragile confidence to say, the only times I felt good all day was when I got that unlikely thing. So I need that to happen again. And, and what does that dependency on momentum? Because, um, you, you hear about golfers say I'm a momentum player or even streaky player. And that's kind of referring to just straight up stats on sometimes I'm better than other times, but what, what's the danger there for players that say, I, I, I'm a momentum player. I need, uh, I need the feeling of momentum to, to perform better. Yeah. So I'd probably say by definition, I think everybody's a momentum player. Like you were saying, I play my best when momentum is in my favor. Like, yeah, sure. That's like saying everybody is a flow player. Everyone plays better in flow state. Like there's no doubt about that. Question becomes, what about when you're not in flow state? And what about when things aren't going your way? Right. So again, it's not that they are bad. Uh, certainly having momentum going or a bunch of outcomes going your way that make you feel more confident or make it feel like it's your day. That's in no way a bad thing. The downside is, like you said, it's fragile in that, well, what happens when you do miss that part, but, and you lose that momentum. Now you're in trouble because you're relying on a strategy that can come and go very quickly. Um, and I would say that is a common um, mindset or reliance in terms of, confidence when we are building confidence based on past results 
And what that ultimately creates is this trap loop where we go, well, I must get an outcome to feel like I can produce an outcome, which means we put more self-imposed pressure on ourselves to produce that outcome, which again, going back to the physiological and biological non-negotiables tends to disrupt the sequence of our skills, disrupt the application of force and make it more difficult for us to focus on an external target. So basically we are making it more difficult for ourselves to actually execute in a way that would lead to a the likelihood of a good result happening. And then when it doesn't work out, I put even more pressure on myself on the next one. And then we can see why this loop gets tighter and tighter and it becomes more and more difficult to perform where if we actually remove the requirement for a possible outcome to go our way, then we're not relying on momentum. We're not relying on outcomes in order to be confident, which stabilizes confidence. And then when you get results that are in your favor, they are a bonus, not a requirement, which would be far more valuable. When momentum is going your way, it's a bonus, not a requirement. You know, it's kind of the turbo button rather than uh, the directional button. If we're talking video games as an analogy, um, and then therefore, if your confidence is more stable, those things actually become far more uh, amplified boosts. But if you need them to be able to perform well, then the question becomes, well, what happens when you don't? And we always know that not everybody has momentum going their way all the time. Otherwise, everyone would play great. <laughs> okay, well said. Uh, so that I think that's a that's a great um, kind of narrows in the purpose of momentum or um, the existence of, of momentum, what it is and why you shouldn't rely on it. Why, why it's a bonus, not a direction. Good. And I would just, again, that would be kind of a judgment statement. Like you shouldn't rely on momentum. Like there's no rule that says you can't, I would just say, again, what do you get from it? What you're going to get from it is when it's good, it's good. But when it's not there, it's not there. And again, by definition, momentum is rare because it requires a variety of improbable events to play out in our way. And so essentially you're going like, I'm going to stack the deck against myself. And then if it plays out in my way, then I can play good. Well, okay. But then that, like I said, that's not a, I wouldn't say that's a bad strategy. I would say it's super inconsistent. Mm. So you're objectively evaluating your need for momentum. Right. Now, if you're telling me I play better when momentum is going my way, yes, that is objectively true. But what's also objectively true is that it is a inconsistent and therefore unstable source of confidence and therefore relying on it is going to tee you up for failure more often than it is for you to be able to go play freely. Got it. Okay. So at the end of the awareness section, you talk about mindfulness practice as a practical way to train this and 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 that's that's what i want to jump into is what's the purpose of mindfulness practice uh what are you training what's it for uh is this something everyone should be doing on a regular basis or um uh, is it a more helpful thing to be doing than other things talk to me about mindfulness practice sure so mindfulness practices uh to be clear here's what they are not which is a state of non-thinking a state of total comfort and certainty or a state of Zen or something that is designed to snap us into flow state. Um, that is not what it is. So if you try to practice mindfulness in that way, I promise you, you'll drive yourself crazy. Um, what mindfulness is, is as a practice is us training the type of awareness that allows us to be more present more often and to more objectively observe our current experience period end of sentence. And again, what that allows for, is that we can have thoughts and feelings and they're not disruptive just because they exist. 
So because we learn to interact with them in ways that allow them to come and go and for us to be able to think about our thoughts in a way where just because they exist doesn't mean they have to be a fact, right? So that's the first thing it allows us to do. Second thing it does is it trains our focus to be present for longer durations or for at least um, more intentional durations, which is crazy important. Again, being present isn't just some philosophical approach to life. We are higher functioning, happier, and healthier human beings when we live our lives present more often. The reason that I'm trying to get most of my clients to be present more often is because that's where you're going to perform better and you're going to enjoy it more and it's going to be a more fulfilling experience for you overall and you're going to be better at dealing with whatever's happening in those moments. Right? So those are the types of things that helps to train us to do. It also trains us the type of awareness where we can pay attention to our behaviors and our thoughts in ways that allow us to be able to change them because it's non-judgmental. I promise you it's going to be a much more difficult process of changing what you do and how you think if you are judging yourself harshly for thinking in that way. Because basically what, again, uh, um, neurologically, your brain is digging its heels into them with judgment, not the other way around. Right? So these practices are important for us because most of our life, we don't spend very present. We are distracted by cell phone, by a leaderboard, by other people. We spend quite a bit of our time just often wandering thought. And so if we think about mindfulness practice, it's like strength training for our awareness. And we're building a really flexible and really durable awareness. It's like if you could take total yoga flexibility with powerlifting and put it together for your brain. That's what it is. And the practices are very simple. But they're often uncomfortable to start with because it's the exact opposite of what we typically do, which is just let our thoughts wander wherever they go and or um, force ourselves to try to think in certain ways or not think in certain ways. So it's like kind of learning a little bit of a different language. But the research also shows us after 14 to 30 days, your relationship with your own thoughts and feelings and the direct experiences of your life start to change in really helpful ways. And your brain starts to actually neurologically rewire in ways that allow you to be present more often. So it's not just a psychological exercise. You are physically changing your brain. You know, that's the neuroplastic ability of uh, being mindful. And what it does is it helps us be present more often. It helps us to have thoughts without being dragged around by them. And if that is the combination you have, then you don't have to worry about what thoughts you have. You don't have to worry about what feelings you have. You don't have to try to figure out the future so frequently before you get there because you're much more durable in those moments to begin with. So they're very practical and simple practices, but they require some consistency, um, like kind of a daily practice. It doesn't have to be forever. Usually six minutes is basically our minimum dosage that we can work up to. 20 minutes is usually the maximum dosage. Um, but there's a reason. So many performance realms, you hear athletes talking about mindfulness training, you have it required, like a variety of um, professional organizations in sport require their athletes to go to mindfulness practice every day. And the reason is because the research behind it is undeniable. People who practice mindfulness, there is just a exhaustive laundry list of benefits that we see over and over and over and over again in ways that just trying to be positive, trying to just not think or trying to just relax, don't offer. And if you want that laundry list, it is somewhere in the mindfulness section and it is at least two pages long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's, um, it's just like, boom, 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 boom. It's just all of the physical and emotional and mental benefits of mindfulness. Um, it is, it's, 
And then you jump to the to the references part of the book and you read the titles of all of these research articles and it's like mindfulness, 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 and how it addresses so many different things from a just kind of everyday healthiness and well-being standpoint, but also like real um, actual mental disabilities and those kind of things. Correct. And, and I would add that and the performance realm. And like there are health benefits, there are relational benefits, and we perform better when we are doing mindfulness training in the same way we perform better when we are strength training and eating well and sleeping well. Yep. Yeah. So is there on a practical level, um, you, you listed some things like six minutes to 20 minutes, somewhere in that range daily, if, if possible, and it's uncomfortable to start. So is it, is it important for, and what comes to mind is when, right. And kind of, um, if you were giving a program to someone, obviously it depends on their starting point and, and their, their kind of trait mindfulness as, as you'd call it in psychology. But would you, would you say do it when you're already most mental, mental chatter is already at this, at its loudest or start easy and calm and, um, is it more important to, for the environment to be more distracting or less distracting? Give some guidance there. Sure. Well, to be very clear, any time is better than none times. So it's kind of like eating healthy. When's the best time to eat healthy? All the time, technically, right? When's the best time to get exercise? Technically, exercise is valuable for us almost at any time, provided you're not over, uh, you know, going past the point where it's, uh, which is hard to do. But like, mm-hmm. if you're anytime during the day would provide value to you. There are times when it is more valuable. And for us, mindfulness training, that is earlier in the day, right? For two reasons. The first is our brain has more energy and more focus to be able to pay attention to it because we have slept and restored our uh, cognitive abilities, which happens while we're asleep. Uh, The second is it sets a bit of a mindful tone for the day. Right? So the things we do in the morning earlier in the day tend to start to set the tone. Like, if you get out of bed, you're just scrolling through your phone, like your pajamas till noon, whatever. It's harder to get things moving in a more productive direction for the rest of the day in the same way that if I get up, pay attention to what I'm thinking and feeling in a non-judgmental way, and I'm just present to begin my day, it starts to groove that tone for the day. For performance specifically, I my recommendations for all my clients are is a morning mindfulness practice shortly after you get up doesn't have to be first thing, but maybe in the first hour. And then another one, if uh, closer to performance. So for golfers, that's before you go to the course, perhaps maybe while you're at the course, if you can find a space in the clubhouse or in your car or whatever, where you're actually just making it a point to be present and pay attention to your experience before it's required in the same way that you would warm up your body and get a workout before you go start hitting golf balls because otherwise you're adjusting on the fly and it's not as an efficient process for us. So um, a morning practice and a pre-performance practice would be um, more than beneficial for the vast majority of people. And again, stacking days with those practices is really the most important thing. You do not need to mindfully practice or meditate for an hour a day unless you really want to. Some people do, but the research shows us that that's not required to reap the benefits of it. And then what starts to happen is because, you know, it's kind of, again, like physically working out, 
as you get stronger and fitter in your workouts, that generalizes over into other areas of your life where you start to notice your thoughts more readily and less judgmentally during your performance. And you pay attention to those shifts and you recognize them sooner. And you are also training yourself to use something like an anchor, like perhaps your breath or a physical sensation or something to be present more often in the same way that if you work out and you get stronger in the weight room, it's easier to do yard work. It's, you know, you have more energy throughout the day when you're just at work or taking care of kids and doing whatever. The same thing works in our mindfulness practice as we start to make that more of a um, a daily practice and something that is part of our performance routine rather than on the fly. So as we move into the habits section, we we've trained our ability to notice things. So is that something that so I'm interested in, in players being able to catch themselves in a bad habit or in an unhelpful habit or a constricting habit. Um, and again, we're trying to, we're trying to notice those things in a non-judgmental way in an objective evaluation sort of way. So is this something that just kind of by osmosis becomes easier to us to, to, to catch us, to catch ourselves when we are projecting into the future, jumping, holding onto the past, uh, responding to things overly emotionally bottling up emotions. Is it something that we, um, maybe starts uh, conscious, but becomes more just second nature through mindfulness practice? Yes and no. So the yes, I'm sorry, the no part is that mindfulness is a conscious awareness, right? We are paying attention on purpose. That means we're using the conscious thinking part of our brains to do so. The important part about that, which gets to the second part of your question is, if we're not paying conscious awareness to our thoughts, to our behaviors, to our habits, to our own thoughts, uh, our own responses to whatnot, they are typically running by the sub, being run by the subconscious portions of our brain. And those subconscious portions of our brain assume they are working, even if they aren't, or assume they are working because they might have been helpful for us in the past. So we need that mindful conscious awareness to pay attention to something consciously and intentionally to therefore bring it out of subconscious processing. And when it's out of subconscious processing, then when we pay attention to the natural consequences of it and not just the direct sensory experience with it, now we can start to see things more for what they are rather than just what our brain assumes is happening. Our brain's assumptions are often incorrect, mm. right? So for example, Many of the players I work with now um, experience high levels of frustration and anxiety, in part because they're playing golf, and it is inherently frustrating and anxious at times, but also in part because that anxiety and that frustration is a habit for them that they developed that was really helpful for them when they were younger. You take a young, relatively skillful golfer and go, you didn't play well, be frustrated and worry about playing poorly again. They're going to go practice and they're going to get better. And on the low end of the learning curve, that is going to be really helpful because when we're not very good at something yet, any type of practice typically leads to improvement. And then therefore that habit of frustration and anxiety gets reinforced and you only have to do that for so long before it becomes a habit that your brain will run in response to the same things, even though as you get to the top end of the learning curve, like where pro golf is or college golf is, anxiety and frustration are not productive. They make the experience worse. They make you play scared shots, hesitant shots, et cetera. And so that habit is not very functional for you anymore. So if you don't pay attention to it consciously, 
your brain's just going to run it, assuming it's doing the same thing it did for you when you were 15. Mm. So is it possible to be um, overly consciously aware to the point where um, you're in your head more and you're just, it, it leads to overthinking? Is that, uh, is it possible to, man, all I do is think about my own thinking. Um, I could see maybe someone says, man, you, you want me to be thinking about my own thoughts the entire day constantly? What do you, what do you say to that? Yeah, I would say, no, I don't want you doing that. And that is possible. I would say that is a also a habit that we tend to develop as a means of trying to gain control of our thoughts, rather. And that is, again, that's me. I have to pay attention to my thoughts all the time. No, not necessarily. We want to pay attention to them in ways where, how do we find out when they are disruptive and when they aren't for you, right? There's a time for us to really perhaps overthink things on the golf course is not one of them. And again, the reason is because when we are overthinking, it's not that it's bad or negative. What it does is it creates too much activity in your brain to be able to prioritize golf balls here, get it there as efficiently as you can. I would say the vast majority of people, if that is the worry, try paying conscious attention to your own thoughts and feelings in a mindful way. And my guess is your thinking is going to decrease over time, not increase. So when we first start mindfulness practice for people who have been away from it for a while or haven't tried it at all, it seems like we're thinking more. Actually, what's happening is you're just paying attention to how much you've been thinking in a way that you haven't before. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because now you can go, holy cow, look how often I'm thinking about things in ways that are probably not super helpful for me. Then I wonder what I could pay attention to right now instead that would make things more simple. Right. Yeah. So conscious awareness as a way of reducing overthinking when it feels like you're thinking more, it feels like as I'm paying attention to my own uh, responses and and behaviors, it it feels like I'm, I'm introducing more thinking, but you're actually keeping it at the lowest level of thinking. There's always some thinking going on. You're keeping it at the lowest level. Yeah. And you might even notice how much you're thinking, which then allows you to learn how to be present more often and allow those thoughts to pass and be less disruptive to you. The bottom line is whether we're paying attention to it or not, whatever thoughts we're having are happening. It's just us paying conscious attention to it feels like more because now we're actually thinking like you'd be like if you're at a a party and there's just like a lot of people talking, but you're in this conversation. And if you pop the time out and we're like, hold on, what's the larger noise going on here? That was still happening. Mm-hmm. The difference is now you're actually consciously paying attention to it. And then what that allows you to do is go, well, do I want to move to another room or do I want to just speak louder? Do I want to engage with the larger conversation, et cetera? So it offers us choice, but just because we're not paying attention to it doesn't mean it's happening. Where this becomes limiting for us is what if those thoughts are super anxiety provoking or triggering really unproductive habits? If we're not paying attention to them, we can't do anything about them because they're just going to keep running whether we're paying attention to them or not. So avoidance of our thoughts and feelings is typically the least effective strategy for us trying to perform well because we're hoping those things don't happen when our brain is specifically designed to do that. Right. So leaning into it and actually facing it is scary. I don't want to face that anxiety provoking, uh, thought, but leaning into it and showing yourself, I can sit with this and nothing bad actually really happens is empowering. 
or perhaps maybe that nothing bad ever happens, but what happens is very rarely as bad as I project it to be. Or if it is that bad, then I can make a choice. Do I want to engage with it anyway? Right? Like if you told me I'm going to go try to be a pro golfer and there's always a possibility it might not work out. And that means I will have invested this much money, this much time, this much effort, this much whatever in my life. And if it doesn't work out, these are the actual consequences. Then you are at an inflection point where you can go, do you want to engage with this anyway? Rather than, oh, I'm just going to avoid that thought in hopes it works out. When in reality, that thought is running the show underneath, in which case then the experience becomes run through anxiety rather than you going, can I actually play well enough to make it? Anxiety is running the show, in which case then again, the danger with anxiety for us is that it causes us to multitask with avoidance. And again, when it comes to avoidance and pursuit, our brain is specifically designed to choose avoidance. And so if I don't take that off the table by accepting that option and reconciling with it and risking it, then my brain is going to default me to don't play poorly, avoid hitting it this way and that way, rather than going, here's the shot I see, here's the type of tournament I want to have, go try to do that. Yep. Okay. So I want to talk about pressure a little bit. Um, some say that golfers get worse, the more pressure there is, is that, is that true? Or is it, um, is that something that we've kind of created socially created that the the harder something gets the worse you're going to do at it what do you think yeah that's not necessarily true to me i would want to know what kind of pressure so if you take people who are pretty skilled at something and put them in a situation that really tests their skills people typically perform better assuming they're not doing that through anxiety or avoidance right so and we see this week in and week out like There's a reason the same-ish players are on the top of the leaderboard boards almost every week on the LPGA and PGA Tour because you have a lot of people who get under pressure situations but play very freely. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to play great every time because they're not robots, and it doesn't mean that things are going to work out for them, but it is remarkable how consistent they are. And the simple fact of the matter is psychologically, they are not bringing any self-imposed pressure to an already pressurized situation. That's what anxiety and frustration do for us. They add self-imposed pressure that is not required. What we see from pressure situations, which there are, by the way, you're going to play pro golf or even highly competitive golf or a money game with your friends, you're creating pressure. The situation means there is a margin for error that you must meet in order to be successful. And if you're outside of that, it is less successful or unsuccessful. And there are some levels of consequences to that. That's real. Where anxiety and frustration or anger and our um, more self-imposed pressure comes is it makes that margin for error smaller than it really is. For example, I'm playing a tournament. In order for me to be successful, I must be perfect. Perfection is never required for success, or if it is, it's in the very smallest doses, right? But that self-imposed pressure will create anxiety, which then does disrupt our performance in a negative way. So competitive pressure we might say, or external pressure, typically does not make people perform worse just because it exists. It might vary what success is outcome-wise. So for example, if we said, here's the pressure, it's a crazy baked out golf course, it's super, super windy with pins tucked away and it's crazy long, success might look different than if it's a softer golf course that's shorter with low wind and perfect conditions, right? Both of those offer two different competitive levels of pressure. 
internally though we can take that and make it far more pressure filled what we see from people who have really stable confidence is that they are never adding pressure that doesn't really exist so here's again why subjective and objective is important self-imposed pressure is often highly subjective i have to be perfect i have to prove something i can't make a mistake here can't let this happen can't let this happen oh, my stats show this, therefore I can't let this happen. And again, we're creating all of these rules and boxes to check off that are not actually part of the competitive situation. Because in a, a round of golf, it doesn't really matter where you get your strokes. It just do you get them at the end. Now, there are probably holes that statistically are more likely for you to get them, but it's not a requirement that you have to birdie all par, par fives in order to shoot a low score. That's one of the areas where strokes are more readily gained, but again, not a requirement. So if I go into a round of golf line, I have to birdie every single par five. I'm far more likely to play those par fives through anxiety than I am playing them freely, which again, stacks the deck against me, not in my favor. So um, to your question, pressure exists. Self-imposed pressure disrupts our performance. And again, if we allow for all the things that we don't want to happen, we remove that self-imposed pressure. Yep. Okay. So let's move into the framework section as we, as we head towards, uh, the finish line, how, how can you specifically get to the core of someone's beliefs or to the, for the listener, maybe why is it important to know your core beliefs or your core framework or the, your core way of seeing the world and how, how can they uncover their own? Why is it important? How do you, and how can they? It's important because it's running the show for us. Our psychological framework is the primary software that is running the hardware of our brain. So the core beliefs about the things in our world, ourselves, the events of our lives, whether that's a golf shot, a golf tournament, or the greater golf experience for us, etc., they're running the show. And if we don't pay attention to them, we're hoping that they just are falling in line in ways that allow us to thrive, which... Again, based on how our brain is designed, that is not necessarily the case. Right? It's also important for us to pay attention to them because they dictate what kind of experience we have. Do we have an avoidant experience or do we have a pursuit-based experience? And those two types of experiences register very differently for us on a neurochemical level and whether we are intrinsically motivated to do something, which really means, am I, do I really want to do this? Do I find it enjoyable and fulfilling, even though it's really challenging, makes a very big difference for us because it's basically the opposite is a formula for burnout. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if the whole point of playing golf is to try to play well and enjoy it more, paying attention to the core beliefs behind it is a pretty important thing for us. Um, how do you get to them? The first is asking about them right? Whether I do it or whether someone does it for themselves, asking ourselves questions like, what are the thoughts driving my experience? Or what are my core beliefs about? And then fill in blank. So we understand our maybe implicit beliefs by explicitly asking about them. So bringing conscious awareness to, well, what do you think about? And then fill in whatever blank for us. Then what we're looking for is not just what it is, but what is it actually doing for us? So in the book, I put our core beliefs into two different shapes. And it's not that one is positive and one is negative. It's what they create for us. So in the book, for people who get to it, I have an A-shaped belief and a V-shaped belief. An A-shaped belief, what they do for us and the words within them create constriction. So that is I'm making the margins for error 
smaller than what they really are. And what they do for us is the way we are explaining what happens if I miss this margin for error to be threatening enough that it gives the, the survival portions of our brain very good reason to choose avoidance instead of pursuit. Hence, they dis de destabilize confidence because it doesn't give us any room to be present and it doesn't allow us to accept that there is risk involved. V-shaped beliefs, on the other hand, keep the window for being able to perform in the present moment as wide as possible. And I want to be very clear, that doesn't mean pretending we don't care about results or that there aren't any consequences or that there's infinite room for error. There is not in performance. But what it does is it provides as much space as there actually is, which in any performance, there is room to be present, provided we don't squeeze ourselves off from it based on how we are thinking about something. And then also, if we actually evaluate what is the risk involved, what are the consequences of failure, not success just alone, but also failure, it allows us to then go, am I willing to take that risk? And if the answer is yes, I will accept this risk and these consequences, even though I don't like them. But because I have evaluated them closer to truth, I can make that choice intentionally. Then you're not multitasking with avoidance while you're trying to pursue. And again, biological non-negotiable, the two-tenths of the second between the top of your backswing and impact is probably five times as much time as necessary for your brain to choose avoidance over pursuit if you give it the option to do so. Right. Mm. Stable confidence by definition is not rooted in uh, comfort. It's not rooted in certainty and it's not about trust. Stable confidence is permission to execute freely or play freely, live freely, be authentic, etc. without a guarantee, not with a guarantee. What makes confidence unstable for us is looking for guarantees where there aren't any. And the bottom line is if you're going to go perform at the highest levels, as you alluded to, there is pressure, there are consequences, and no guarantees involved. So if we stop requiring guarantees from our, thi our, our thinking allows us to stop requiring guarantees, then when there's an option for go for what you want or try to avoid what you don't, we can actually choose pursuit because what we want to avoid is something we're willing to live with not something that we're absolutely sure isn't going to happen, which is never really available to us. Unless you're willing to go compete at levels well below your skill level or so far outside of your skill level. But then again, you're not really setting yourself up to thrive. in this situation. Mm. Okay. So I want to ask one final question as we, as we depart. If, if two players and as a preface, so many of the best players in the world are coached so equally and so similarly, at least maybe not equally, but similarly, they've got the entire team of six, seven people around them that all um, attack their game from all these different angles. If, if two players are coached nearly identically, what makes one player play better than the other in in this given round, maybe they're even playing in the same group. They're coached um, nearly identically. Why does one player play better than the other? Well, there could be a variety of reasons for that. You know, like, you know, if we're getting down to the nitty gritty, like is one player healthier than the other? Has one player slept better than the other? Like there are a variety of factors that influence performance. I don't want to pretend that our psychology is the only one, but if I'm, bringing my professional bias to the question, I would choose the player with more stable confidence 
than the player who is even necessarily better. Again, stable confidence allows us to play freely without guarantees. And that gives us room to deal with adversity more uh, effectively, to deal with delays more effectively, all these types of things. I would take that. So in these situations, what I would be, if you're asking me, like, why would a certain player play better? I would go, what is the first order of operations? The first order of operations is, what is this player's psychology like? Essentially, how stable is their confidence? And again, stable confidence means what access do they have to being present more often? Because everything else moves off of that. When we're not present, it creates a neurological and physiological state of anxiety that then physically disrupts our skills. So you could have had the best physical care, be totally nutrition, really well slept. But if you're playing around through anxiety, you're going to get beat by somebody who hasn't. And I'm not saying that all those things aren't important. They are. Getting better at golf, understanding core strategy, taking care of your body, strengthening your body, building speed in your golf swing, super important. But none of them can be used as efficiently as you train them unless you have permission to actually do so from yourself. And that comes from your ability to be able to accept possible risks and to be present under pressure. So it's it's the software that runs yeah. the hardware yeah. that you have trained. Right? Is right. a decent yeah. way to put it? Software doesn't allow your hardware to actually use all the things that you have been training in a means to thrive. And to be very clear, I'm not talking about cutting every corner and firing at every flag. I'm talking about playing shots freely. Um, you could have the best golf swing in the world. You could be the best trained in the world, have all the club head speed in the world. By the way, the faster your club head speed is, the more you disrupt it, the wider that dispersion is going to get. Now, if you can hit it far enough, that might not matter uh, as much, but we know that's not the case because there are tons of dudes who buh, 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 bang it and still have a hard time scoring. So what I would say is if your software doesn't allow you to pursue thriving and it gears you toward avoiding and pushes you towards surviving in those situations, all your physical skills, all the work you put in, you don't have access to them. And that's not a willpower thing. That's a psychological space type of thing. Yep. Okay. I love it. Um, as always, thank you so much. I, I, I don't think people are getting tired of you. I think they, they're probably saying, why doesn't Raymond just replace Josh and just Raymond talk? So uh, again, I always appreciate you you being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. For anyone listening, you can catch the book. It's called Golf Beneath the Surface. You can pre-order it wherever books are sold. Amazon is kind of the most famous place. And uh, my, my hope is that it will be a more comprehensive resource for people. All right. Yeah. Go, go check out the book. It'll, the show notes will be, uh, or the, the link and the way to buy it will be in the show notes. So, um, definitely check that out. Thanks again, Dr. Pryor. Thanks. Doc. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Raymond. I really loved his discussion about why labeling things with emotional labels like good and bad isn't actually the best way to do it, typically. Having a more systematic process of determining if behaviors are helpful or unhelpful, that's a much better way to work through it if you're looking to perform your best, if you're if you're looking to have long-term game improvement, play your best in that moment, be more present, all of those things that he discussed. If you're looking to do those things, I think that's a better way to go about it. He said so, and I agree. 
And I, as I always mention at the end of these episodes, what you've heard here isn't therapy. It's meant for information and education purposes only. If you feel like you need personal help on some deeper things that you're going through, I encourage you to talk to a licensed professional. But on the golf psychology front, if you feel like what you've heard just doesn't quite cut it and you'd like to work one-on-one with someone, I'm a golf psychology coach. I work with players all over the world on improving their minds so that they can improve their performance on the golf course. If you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to send an email to mentalgolfshow at gmail.com or visit my website, joshnicholsgolf.com. All right. Thanks again, everybody listening to this podcast. Whether you're new here or you've been here since day one, I really appreciate the community we've built. If you've enjoyed this episode, go subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And while you're at it, go share this episode with a friend. They could probably use the help. Let's be honest. Okay, thanks for listening to this episode of The Mental Golf Show. I'm Josh Nichols, and I will catch you guys next time.